Bird Note presents. From Bird Note, this is Bring Birds Back. I'm Tanaja Hamilton. So we recently heard this really cool podcast called Headwaters from Glacier National Park. The park is in northwest Montana in the Rocky Mountains, way up there, almost in Canada. And as you might expect from the park's name, it's cold and rugged and really beautiful. The second season of Headwaters is all about a species that plays a huge role, tying the ecosystem there together. It's a tree, the whitebark pine. I swear though, this is an exciting tree. The whitebark pine has a deep relationship with an incredible bird, Clark's nutcracker, which is what got us into the story in the first place. It shows the complicated ways species can work together, how we as humans think about our relationship to nature, and we'll even take you out into the field to see how research is being done to protect these species. Perry Sassna is a co-host of the podcast Headwaters and a ranger at Glacier National Park. So before we dive in, Perry, I know you are a relatively recent new birder as well. Yes. So I would love to know how you got hooked. Uh, maybe we can um, compare some notes. My spark bird, it was actually a bit of a wild goose chase involving some phalaropes. And I had like never birded before, but one of my friends had gotten into it and she called me up and was like, I've heard there were reported some redneck phalaropes down south of town, and I think they might be Wilson's phalaropes, but we have to check them out and see. And I'm like, I don't know what a phalarope is, but sure. And so we went, we did see some phalaropes. They were not the mysterious redneck phalaropes, but Wilson's phalaropes are also incredibly adorable. They're like little origami birds. I just, they're too cute. And I was like, this is kind of fun. Maybe I, maybe I'll tag along again. And so that's kind of where it all started. It kind of pays to be the adventure friend, huh? Oh, yeah. And I just kept birding with these friends and I would not have said I was a birder, would never have gone by myself until COVID happened. And then we were just going on walks every day. I started bringing my binoculars and I was like, like, I didn't think that I was a birder, but I was like, oh, that's a robin. And oh, is that a house finch or a cassin's finch? How could I figure this out? Just sort of baby steps like, oh, I can do this by myself and kind of got into it from there. I see you and me too. Like this is, (laughs) that's exactly how I got into it. And um, it's really powerful because yes, honestly, like look at us now. Right. And like, I mean, you know, I'm a recent birder, but I was kind of recent to all things naturalist. Like I was a geologist. When I started working with the Park Service, I would have said I was not interested in alive things (laughs) that I was here to learn about the geology. And so it was sort of a journey to get interested in those things. But I remember my first couple seasons there, you'd go hiking up a trail and it's this long, steep adventure and you're sweating and out of breath. And you finally start to get up high and you hear this like, ah, ah, (laughs) and it was a Clark's Nutcracker. What um, an ace bird call that was. Oh, thank you. I have been practicing. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. The bird Perry just expertly imitated, Clark's Nutcracker, plays a big part in season two of Headwaters. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a bit. The star of the season is the Nutcracker's main source of food, the whitebark pine. 
The trees can grow as tall as 60 feet and can live more than a thousand years. They live in high elevation forests in parts of the Rocky, Cascade, and Sierra Nevada mountain ranges. And Perry might just be this tree's biggest fan. What is it about the white bark pine that like, you know, I see your face. They can't see your face, but I see your face and you're just, you just look like so like giddy and excited <laughs> about it. So like, what what's that? Tell us. They're just very charismatic. They're beautiful trees. They live in these high elevation forests that it takes a lot of work to get to. I, before we go on, charisma is not something I think of a tree having. That's just a very human trait to me, I guess. And I'm starting to come around to the idea that it's okay sometimes to assign human traits to birds, to anthropomorphize them a bit. And um, I think sometimes I can help you understand and recognize them better. But how, Perry, how does a tree have charisma? So if you think of a Christmas tree, like a little triangle shape, that's what subalpine fir look like. And that's most of the trees in our high elevation forest here, like these little green cones. But then whitebark pine is kind of the opposite. It's sort of like a candelabra where its branches like grow out in this poofy way, kind of reaching out towards the sky. And so they really stick out. And um, a lot of them are dead. So there are these kind of twisted silver skeletons, kind of blown all in one direction by the wind and this like harsh environment that it was living in. The tree skeletons will stand for decades after they've died. So yeah, just like in life and in death, they're very eye-catching. And it's like they grow in these really harsh environments. Like you can imagine the winters we have here, let alone like in the valleys, let alone where they are living, like thousands of feet up on these ridge lines. And so like the shapes of the trees kind of reflect the adversity that they face every day. And yeah, they're so amazing. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> uh, that's right. I'm just now taking a look through some photos of the tree. And it's really interesting how it's kind of contorted in these different ways. And it's just does not look like the others. And I, I get I get this more. Now it's making a little bit more sense. And there was a pretty clear moment for me when I went from feeling kind of like, yeah, these trees are cool. I think this is going to be an interesting topic for the podcast. They're connected to a lot of things going on in the park to like realizing there was a lot more there. And that was with Sheena Shaw-Pete, who's a forester with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. And we were going to visit Alauya, or the great-great-grandparent tree, which is this huge old whitebark pine, and it's dead now, but it must have been at least a thousand years old. And it is huge. Like, only maybe 15 feet of it remain, but the root system is just massive. And so to see how Sheena Shaw interacted with Alauya was different from the way that I would have approached a tree or really any sort of experience in the outdoors. Let's hear a clip of Sheena Shah from Headwaters. Think of all of the energy that they have absorbed from everything that has happened over that time. Whether it's bad or good, but then even when you have an opportunity to come to something 
so old and filled with wisdom from all of that energy absorbed. If you were to take that time to go to it, it's going to share energy with you. That was kind of the start of a shift to where it's not just like, what can I learn about this tree? Like, that's a cool thing in the ecosystem, but like, what can I learn from this tree? What can I learn from this ecosystem? What can I learn from the whole natural world around me? And that it is this relationship that you can build and foster and that can be a really, I don't know, important thing. Perseverance, that's what I see. You go through hardships, but you keep going. Sometimes in life, you have setbacks, and sometimes you get the strength yourself to continue going by adapting, or you have a helping hand. You take that helping hand and move forward. I love that. I love thinking about perseverance in the context of a tree that has withstood a lot, and it makes me think of how resilient nature is. Right. And like these trees are up against so much and they're still here and we are giving them a helping hand and they're doing their best. We'll see how the story turns out, but it's definitely a story of perseverance. All right. So speaking of what we can learn, I know that the white bark pine plays a pretty big role in the ecosystem at Glacier. I would love if you could tell me a little bit more about what it does there and how it affects the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, so they are a keystone species. So they are important, not just because I think they're cool, but because they're important food sources for birds and squirrels and grizzly bears and black bears and so many different species. And they're important for forest structure, like they're a pioneer species. So they're one of the first species to re-sprout after a fire, which is, you know, a burned area is a really harsh environment, like a harsh place for a little seedling to grow. So once a white bark pine takes root, It provides some shade for the next species to come in. And so there's just all these different ways that it kind of shapes the high elevation ecosystem and touches all these other species and parts of the landscape. So I want to talk more about it being a keystone species. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So it's a term borrowed from a famous structure in architecture. The arch. Once built, an arch is incredibly strong. When you build an arch, you start with a column of rock on each side. And then as you start to build the arch and curve the columns together, you have to put up scaffolding. Until the last stone was dropped in at the top, the keystone. It becomes self-supporting and you can take away the scaffolding. But if you take out the keystone, it all falls apart. And so a keystone species is kind of the same idea. It's playing an outsized role in the ecosystem And if you were to take it away... Devastation. Well, I don't necessarily want to say it would all fall apart, but there would be big consequences. Yeah, you know what? You go ahead and you advocate for your tree. If we don't protect the tree, then it all goes kablammy in some way or another. (laughs) Yeah, it will all go sideways. (laughs) Well, let's get a little deeper into that. You said that they're up against so much. So what are some of those challenges? So one is the mountain pine beetle. And they're a native pest, but as the climate is warming, they are creeping up in elevation. So normally in the past, temperatures get cold enough where whitebark pine lives that it will kill the pine beetle's larva. 
But as the climate warms, those temperatures come less and less often. And so pine beetles can attack whitebark pines much more effectively. The novel threat that they're facing is blister rust, which is a fungus that came over to North America in the early 1900s. And that has been a real challenge. It enters the pores on the needles and moves down through the branches of the trees and it strangles the branch and then eventually the whole tree and kills the tree. Mm. A small percentage of trees have some natural resistance too. And that's kind of what the restoration program is hinging on, but it's a very small percentage. Oh, goodness. They're really getting attacked on a couple of different levels. The pine beetles, the fungus, and of course you have climate change, which is making both of those threats worse. Oh yeah, it is a very messy and difficult problem to face because you can't like disentangle one from the other. And so obviously these are things that threaten the tree itself. But going back to your earlier point, this tree is a keystone species. So we're not talking just about the tree. We're talking about the birds and, you know, all of the other life around there that depends on the tree for food. So I want to dig a little bit more into Clark's Nutcracker because, you know, this is a bird show. Of course. What did you learn about the bird throughout the course of season two? One of the things that stuck with me most is just their personality and their very, like, fun-loving, feisty birds. They're very talkative. They have all kinds of different calls, not just the one that I performed for you (laughs) earlier. And like a lot of birds, you know, they're kind of all business. (laughs) But the nutcrackers, like other corvids at times, they seem like they're having fun. And so, of course, as a human, it's hard not to anthropomorphize. And so it's an appealing trait. You want the fun bird. Of course. And they're very fun birds. (laughs) Who kind of helped you learn about this bird? So there's a team of people at Glacier who are doing a research project on Clark's Nutcrackers. So there's Lisa Bate. I'm a wildlife biologist here at Glacier National Park. And a grad student, Vlad Kovalenko. I am a Glacier National Park wildlife tech. And so they were two of the people that we talked with for the show about it. And Lisa especially has quite a fun way of describing things. Okay, this is like the most amazing thing about Clark's (laughs) Nutcrackers. They are the only bird in North America with a sublingual pouch. That means a pouch under the tongue. And they have co-evolved with whitebark pine to collect those seeds. They put them in that little pouch. And if you're lucky enough to see that start bulging, you can actually see the definition of the individual pine seeds. I can already tell that um, she may be the most excited person about a sublingual pouch. She definitely gets the gold medal for that in my book. (laughs) Um, We know that this particular tree is a great food source, right? Yes. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the Clark's Nutcracker and the Whitebark Pine have this sort of famous mutualistic relationship where the cones for the whitebark pine, unlike most trees, they don't open on their own to release their seeds. Someone needs to open them. And they're big, big pine nuts. You know, it's not like these little windblown seeds from other trees. And so they're a very appealing food source, but most animals can't get into the cones. But Clark's nutcrackers can. 
And so they'll pound away with their beaks to open up the cones and take the seeds out and they'll store them in their sublingual pouch and then they'll go cache them a couple at a time around the forest floor. And they love to cache them in burned areas. And then they are so smart that they can remember where 98% of those seeds have been cached, but it's the 2%, the 1% to 2% that they can't remember or they don't get to. That's what germinates into the next generation of white bark pine. So it is, it's just this fabulous mutualistic relationship that's evolved over the millennium. The trees rely entirely on the birds. There's no other way they can reproduce. The nutcrackers, they definitely rely on the tree because that's the best food source for them. Like if you compare pine nuts to like these little teeny weeny little seeds from a Douglas fir, no contest. But they can eat other stuff. So the birds, they can eat all these other seeds. They can eat bugs. So they have a little more versatility. But those caches are a really key winter food source for them. And so without the tree, like without the bird, the tree's done. Without the tree, the bird, that's one of the questions of this research project is, are nutcrackers still breeding in the park, like with the loss of whitebark pine? And one of the questions they're hoping to answer. But they have a little more versatility than the tree does. Mm. Okay, so I know a little bit more about the questions that y'all are seeking to answer. How does that happen? How are y'all endeavoring to answer these questions, particularly about what these Clark's nutcrackers are doing when they can't subsist on the trees? So it's pretty amazing, actually, this technology that we have that we did not have 10 or 20 years ago. They put little backpack trackers on eight nutcrackers. It's only a few grams. They can make them so lightweight now that they're only a couple percent of the bird's body weight. So it doesn't really impact them. And so they can see where they are more or less in real time. Whether they're in the park, they can see if they've left the park. It's incredible. And so that's how they're trying to kind of track their movements and figure out what they're doing and where they're breeding. That sounds like the cutest visual. I know, a bird backpack. <laughs> a little birdie with a bird backpack. I'm sorry, are you kidding me? Yeah, it's pretty adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I, mean, if you could get me some bird backpack pictures, I would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> they're not quite as cute as you might be envisioning, like, you know, the kindergartner going to school. But <laughs> okay, it's real cute in my head. It's real cute in my head. <laughs> Coming up. Lisa and Vlad send their little backpack birds off to kindergarten. Well, if they can capture them in the first place. That's after the break. All right, so we left off where Lisa and Vlad were getting ready to put these little tracker backpacks on some Clark's nutcrackers so they can study the birds' movements and see if they're still spending much time at all in the park. But this bird, as you mentioned, is a corvid. And if I have learned anything this season, it's that uh, corvids are pretty smart birds. Um, So was catching them hard? Uh, So hard. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Love that. Need more. Um, How Lisa and Vlad kind of went about getting these transmitters, the cute little bird backpacks, on them. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a process. And so they're doing this in the winter. 
in Montana. It's freezing. They have to like ski up a road to a closed road to get to the spot where they're even trapping the birds. It's a whole thing. If anything's amiss, they'll detect it instantly. And so they were using a bait called suet to try and attract them. I think it's mostly beef fat. So it's very appealing for the birds, but of course they're suspicious of anything new. So they hung the suit in a tree to get them used to it. Then they put the suit on the ground to get them used to that. Then they put the suet on the open bow net to get them used to that. Then they finally tried to trap them. So they're sitting in little chairs hidden in the woods with this long pull cord for the bow net. And they have to sit there completely still in the winter in Montana, it's freezing. We spent like hours, we spent days sitting yeah. there in a chair and we had to learn to just hold perfectly still, didn't we? If they even moved a finger like out of place, the birds would be like gone. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they'd been waiting and waiting for a bird to land on the suet in the bonnet on the ground. And so, you know, they have all these volunteers that are like, you know, hanging out in the woods shivering and trying not to move, waiting for birds to land and just seeing if they're going to like take the bait. And Lisa was in town running errands or something. And she got a text from one of the volunteers that said, bird on suet, bird on ground. I just got goosebumps. I called Vlad. I'm like, what are you doing tomorrow? He's like, I don't know. What am I doing? I'm like, we're trapping a bird. It sounds so dramatic. Yes. <laughs> they would take the birds into a cabin nearby to put the little backpacks on them. And every single bird that we handled had a different personality. There was the one that we came away with uh, bruises all over our knuckles. <laughs> and then there was a, another one that was just cool as a cucumber. But they said that if they gave them a little stick to hold onto in their toes, that they would calm down. And I thought that was the cutest thing. <laughs> and I guess it makes sense. Like if you're a bird, you spend your life either flying or perching. And if you're not flying and you're not perching, like once they had that, they calmed down. But if they didn't have that, they were pecking at everything and grabbing at the towel that they were trying to process the birds on and all these things. And it was, I thought it was very relatable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Perry, science is real cute. I know. Science is real cute sometimes. It has its moments for sure. Um, so, okay. So did you get a chance to actually see any of these backpack birds out in the wild? Yeah. Well, it was very exciting because we had gone out with Vlad in the field to spend a day out like tracking nutcrackers and trying to find the ones with the antennas on them. You can track them in real time. So Vlad can see where the birds are generally in his office and then go out in the field. But I mean, they could have left or something. So there's sort of an element of luck to it. You have to get close enough, kind of within range. And then when it does, it kind of says in this robot voice. One, zero, three. Woo! That's good news. So it's transmitting? Yeah, someone's transmitting. And the higher the number is, the closer you are to the bird. One, five, six. Yeah, it should keep increasing. Uh, zero, eight. What was that? There's our friend, our cracker. Oh, one on the top of that tree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a ton of them. All right, give me an antenna, please. We'd seen so many nutcrackers. 
None with antennas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we'd been hiking all along this ridge, all throughout their habitat. And finally, at the end of the day, we heard some more nutcrackers and we're like, probably not our birds still. But the antenna was like two, seven, five. And we were like, oh, there's one nearby. And then one of the nutcrackers landed near us. The top of this really thin tree. That's got an antenna. It does? Yeah. Big fat one. Oh, I see a bunch of opened cones. It's perched right on top of that white bark. I haven't yet seen it drill open the cones yet the seeds, but there's a bunch of already opened cones at the top of that white bark. Gosh, you're fun to watch. This sounds really fun. Like, it sounds like bird watching on adrenaline. Yeah, well, it's like a treasure hunt, kind of. It's not just like looking for the birds. It's like this specific bird, and I know it's here, but where is it? I love that. Um, There's so much of hearing you kind of even go back and tell this story again to me where I'm like, there's just so much joy in this experience. Um, And I love that those two things can coexist, right? Yeah. And especially with a story like this, which you could see it as a pretty sad story, but that's not all that it is. There is sadness there and there is loss of so many of these trees, but there's also so much joy in seeing these birds like frolicking around and getting to know these trees and yeah, like building my relationship with all of these species and with this ecosystem and then hope in seeing the work that people are putting into the restoration program. Yeah. I guess my next thing is I want to know, and kind of taking this from what you've said thus far, um, and what's next for these trees, what's next for these birds, what do we know about what can potentially come after this plant? I'm thinking about, you know, this really cool mutual relationship you've been talking about. I'm thinking about what happens if the white bark pine declines. Uh, What would happen? Well, so if white bark pine went extinct, I guess if we start with a nutcracker, they would leave. They would probably go down to Utah, see if they can get the pinion pine nuts. They would probably adapt, but there would definitely be fewer of them. And they probably would not be here in the same numbers, if at all. But yeah, if you look at all these other species, it's like grizzly bears and black bears. When... Cone crops are worse. There are more bears at lower elevations where people live. They get into more trouble. There's these ripple effects all throughout the ecosystem for all the species that depend on whitebark pine. So that's why there's this big restoration program. Yeah. And to be fair, there is still a lot of hope, as you were just saying. And we don't know exactly what will happen yet, you know, with so much interconnectedness, it's hard to be certain exactly where the ripples end up. But this is all a part of the serious threats to the tree. Yeah. And certainly, like we said, there's is that percentage of the trees that are naturally resistant to the blister rust, at least. So I think from the people we talked to, there were kind of different prognoses. Some people are more optimistic than others, but Yeah, the more optimistic scenarios are sort of if the restoration effort is successful and we can have white bark pine persist on the landscape, that's that's the dream and the hope. Mm. 
Perry, again, there seems like so much that um, was really gratifying about this. But I'm curious about what really stuck with you from telling this story and working on this project. Yeah, kind of back to where we started with that day with Sheena Shaw and with everyone else that we talked to this season, just learning that this is a relationship, like we are part of the ecosystem. You know, I think it's really easy to see ourselves as separate, like that's nature and we're over here and humans, we're the people that are destroying the nature. You know, I mean, that's kind of how the National Parks concept came about. It was like, well, first we need to remove indigenous peoples. Then we need to draw a line around these places to keep the people out so we don't ruin the nature. And seeing it in a totally different way as like humans are part of this ecosystem. We have a role in it. We can have a relationship. We can be stewards. We can learn from the natural world. It's just a totally different way of seeing things. I've similarly in my bird journey, which still feels so much in its infancy. The biggest things I've learned are really just about the relationships between people and nature and how to reframe my thinking from thinking that nature is happening outside of me and outside of how I exist in the world to now thinking about myself as a part of and living and surviving and being alive in concert with it, like together. And it's that mind shift I'm hearing you kind of allude to as well. Yeah, like as a birder, I think instead of imagining birding as kind of like a zoo where you're the birder and there's a glass wall and you're just seeing what they're doing, it's like to walk through the forest and like hear birds like talking about you, you know, like alarm, alarm, there's a human. Like you're part of the experience and you can hear them reacting to your presence. And if you're, you know, quiet enough and part of the ecosystem enough, then they won't alarm call. It's great. (laughs) I've learned so much from you and I, I'm just even more excited to hear what's coming next for Headwaters. What can we look forward to in season three? So season three will be a history season. Ah. Yeah. So kind of the pre-park history from the Pleistocene through the 19th century leading up to the formation of the park in 1910 and the formation of the Park Service in 1916. So kind of looking at the history that led to the formation of the park and then tying that into today of like, how do these stories that seem like the very distant past affect us every day? So it's been very fun to work on and I'm excited for it to come out this winter. I'm really excited and I cannot wait to hear all the kind of the in-depth research and the new insights you guys pull out. Thank you. Perry Sassnet is co-host of the podcast Headwaters, which is made possible by the Glacier National Park Conservancy. If you are now the White Bark Pines' biggest fan, good news. There are five episodes about it from Headwaters you can listen to right now, and their next season starts early 2023. Just search for Headwaters in your favorite podcast app. Bring Birds Back is produced by Mark Bramhill and me, Tanaja Hamilton. 
Our production assistant is Sam Johnson. Our fact checker is Connor Guerin. Our content director and editor this season is Allison Wilson. Music is by Cosmo Sheldrake, Blue Dot Sessions, and Mark Bramhill. Special thanks to Vicki Merrick and, of course, the Headwaters team at Glacier.